You already know that if you burn yourself or break a bone, those areas of the body heal. But what if the body's naturally occurring ability to mend itself is harnessed to potentially cure a wider range of conditions? What if instead of trying to fix a failing heart or a malfunctioning kidney, we could replace diseased or damaged organs and other body parts with new lab-created versions? How might transplanting tissue from other species help the critical shortage of human transplant organs? All fascinating questions that researchers are looking at right now, and so will we during this episode of The Pursuit of Precision, The Science of Advancing Individualized Medicine, Regenerative Therapeutics, and Xenotransplantation. I'm Kathy Werzer. Glad you're with us. Joining us, two excellent guests on the topic, Dr. Julie Alexson. She's the director of Mayo Clinic Center for Regenerative Medicine and the director for Biomanufacturing and Product Development at the Center for Regenerative Medicine. Also with us is Dr. Robert Montgomery, the director of the NYU Langone Transplant Institute and a world expert on kidney transplantation. He also has a fascinating personal story, having been on the other side of the operating table as a heart transplant recipient. It's so nice to have you both with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Excited to be here today. As many of our listeners know, and I know you too know this as well, currently 10 patients die every day in this country while waiting to receive organ transplants because there just simply aren't enough donor organs. And I don't want to be simplistic here, but regenerative medicine and xenotransplantation seem to share the same goal, replacing diseased organs with newly functioning ones. In your world, Dr. Alexson, achieving that goal comes from within, right? You're, you're looking at healing from within using biologics? That's one way we can look at it. We also look at it from a tissue engineering perspective. It might be either that we use a biomaterial as a scaffold that we can line with cells, or we can take an organ and we can desell that organ and then recellularize it. But we also are looking at how do we revive these organs that can't be used for transplant right now. So that's a large effort that we have right now at the Florida site at Mayo Clinic. Perhaps we can maybe tell listeners, can you explain biologics? Biologics is a living drug. You could compare that to a pharmaceutical that's generally a chemical. So it's a living drug that we're producing a therapy or a cure for the patient. And Dr. Montgomery, I'm going to bring you into this conversation shortly here. How does the biologic approach differ from traditional medication or perhaps surgical approaches to tissue repair? The goal with the biologics is really to cure. So if we're talking about cells and being able to use those for cancer, that the patient is completely in remission, or if we're using a tissue, we're going to be able to repair an organ and the patient would be cured. Or if the patient gets cells, they're diabetic and they get islet cells, that they would no longer be diabetic. So we want to cure the patients. We don't want to keep treating them forever. That's that's really the goal. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Montgomery, let's talk about surgical transplantation here. Your center made news last year when your doctors transplanted pig hearts into two deceased patients to study the results. Fascinating story. What was discovered? Well, so we've done actually four transplants into decedents, and these are individuals who have been declared brain dead, but their hearts are still beating and they're maintained on a ventilator. And in the case of these four individuals who had wanted to donate their organs at the time of their death, 
they, for various reasons, their organs weren't suitable for transplantation. And so we approached the family with this new concept of whole body donation for the purpose of, of participating as a subject, if you will, in a research study. And in this case, it was to test, in the first instance, a kidney that had been genetically engineered from a pig. This had never been done successfully to transplant a pig kidney into a human. And so we did two cases like that, and then two hearts, again, that had been genetically edited so they would be more acceptable to the human. And those hearts beaded away in the chest of these two decedents for three days. Wow. And we should say back in the 1960s, right, weren't researchers using transplants of kidneys, hearts, and livers from baboons and chimpanzees? So using pig organs is something a little bit different. It is. I think that the organs from primates were not a, a very acceptable alternative to the general public. First of all, there's a scarcity of primates. They're much closer to humans on the evolutionary scale. And that actually has some benefits in terms of compatibility with humans, but it also has a greater risk of transmissibility of infectious agents like viruses. The closer the two species are together, the more likely that a virus would infect human cells from a primate. In, in the late 1900s, were off the table in terms of consideration as donors for xenotransplantation. And instead, we turned to an alternative, which was the pig. Pigs are food source. They have large litters. They're relatively easy to genetically engineer, and they are able to breed multiple times during the year. So this is a scalable type of donor for xenografts, and one that, again, is a bit more distant from humans. So the risk of what we call zoonosis or an infection from an animal to a human is, is less. So two kidneys, two hearts. I can only imagine what your transplant team said when they worked at least for a while. Well, both were very dramatic. When we transplanted the kidneys, believe it or not, within moments of the blood from the human rushing into the organ, the kidney started to make urine and urine was squirting out the ureter. That's very dramatic, but even more dramatic, especially for me, having received a heart transplant to see a pig heart pounding away in the chest of a human being. I just never thought I would see that in my lifetime. And it was just a awe-inspiring moment. Can we talk a little bit about, because I, I don't want to go focus solely, I want to have you both kind of interact here. How might your fields of research dovetail with each other? As you're both, as I say at the beginning of the introduction there, you're both have the same goal in a sense. So maybe you can help us out here, Dr. Allickson, when you listen to what Dr. Montgomery is talking about, how does it reflect what you're working on? That's fascinating. I'm excited to hear about that. I think we have opportunities, as I alluded to in the beginning, with taking an organ or a tissue where we can decellularize that. So I think there's 
other opportunities, maybe other than the kidney, the heart, but possibly those as well as we look at moving technology forward where we can use those as well through the decellularized process. So I think other tissues that people might be waiting in line for as as well. So I think that there's opportunities where we can work together or I would say if there's an opportunity for an organ to be revived in some way, that would be where the Center for Biotherapeutics comes into play, where we might be able to produce those cells or those factors that we can put into the organ or tissue to to help revive it. Dr. Montgomery? I think both approaches are fascinating and viable. I kind of look at bioartificial organs and xenotransplantation as sort of the wind and solar of the future of organ availability. It's a sustainable way to create a new source of organs. And pointed out in the beginning, that's our number one unmet need in transplantation right now. I'll frame it a little differently. Of the people who are on the wait list waiting for an organ, life-saving organ, only a third of them will make it across the finish line, and the others will either become too ill or die before they receive an organ. So we have something that works really well. We just don't have enough of it. And so either building an organ or providing an organ from another species, both of these are really important new sources of organs. I mean, my feeling is that with xenotransplantation, you already have the organ built, if you will, by nature, and you have to kind of deconstruct it a little bit to make it more compatible with humans. But again, I think that these aren't mutually exclusive approaches, not at all. I think they'll be complementary. My personal feeling is that maybe the uh, xeno organ is going to be probably in the mix a bit earlier than organs that are essentially recellularized or created in the laboratory. I'll just add in that bioprinting would would be the other way. So we do actually execute on bioprinting at the Arizona campus for scaffolds right now for trachea and larynx and looking at being able to bioprint in the future. But as Dr. Montgomery said, to really produce that structure is challenging and it takes a long time to be able to get there. Whereas these organs, either from the different species or that we and or decellulize are, you know, would have a little bit of a faster track potentially to commercialization and to the patient. Could you expand on bioprinting for folks? Is this the first thing you think about is 3D printing, right? There's a lot more to that, obviously, especially as you're talking about scaffolding. Can you outline that for us? That's a good way to think about it. Some of the first printers were like an inkjet and they put cells and biocompatible material in there to be able to print it out. And it would print out layer by layer for what you needed. The printers now are just highly technical, very advanced They have to be able to go into a clean room. They have to be made of stainless steel. They have to be the right temperature and closed down, and they are a lot faster. So they're able to print out things. In the past, it was challenging to print out your structure before it became non-viable. So now we have that opportunity with new technology to be able to quickly print out a structure and, and hopefully in the future, an organ. Dr. Montgomery, I want to go back to you for just a moment here because you you mentioned this, especially talking about the pig hearts that were used in those two xenotransplantation efforts. I think you mentioned that there were genetic modifications done to those hearts. Could you dive into that a little bit? Because we do have a professional audience listening to us. 
what were the genetic modifications that maybe forestalled the potential for rejection? The modifications that we made were based on data from primate models. So there's been quite a lot of work over the past 30 years transplanting pig organs into primates. And these examples that I described for you were the first efforts to translate that into humans. We used what we had learned from the primate work in terms of the gene editing that we introduced. The two hearts that we transplanted actually had 10 gene edits, and four of them were knockouts. So they were pig genes that using CRISPR technology were knocked out. And three of them are genes that encode for carbohydrates that have been lost during evolution from pig to human. And humans make what we call natural antibodies against those carbohydrates because human cells don't have those carbohydrates expressed on them. And those antibodies result in a hyperacute rejection of the organ. So getting rid of those carbohydrates was key. Now, when we transplant the heart of a pig, we usually procure the organ at about seven months of life of the pig. And it's a human size then, but you can imagine those pigs would continue to grow to maybe five, 600 pounds. And that heart continues to grow after the transplant, as it turns out. So we also knocked out the growth hormone receptor so that it wouldn't continue to get the signal to grow. And because you can envision that heart in the chest, which is a small cage of bones, basically the sternum and the spine would compress that heart eventually if it continued to grow. And then there were six knock-ins, if you will, or transgenes. These are human regulatory proteins that we introduced into the pig genome. And these regulate some key pathways for inflammation, coagulation, and complement. Wow. I'm wondering, Dr. Alex, as you're listening to this, I know that your teams work with gene editing and cell therapy. Can you talk a little bit about the use of cells and genes and genetically engineered cells with what you're doing? One of the most important areas right now in Regenda Biotherapeutics is immuno-oncology and CAR-T, so chimeric antigen receptor, where you have a synthetic receptor that combines with the T-cell receptor to be able to kill the cancer cells. Typically, it's used in a liquid cancer, and right now we're looking at how we can amend that or use it in solid tumors. So we're super excited to be able to look at that. We have, with some of the physicians that we're working with, we're looking at combination of therapies with these genetically engineered cells, as well as an oncolytic virus to look at as a platform for treating solid tumors. But also in the gene editing space, right now we work with another investigator, Dr. Eckert, doing mitochondrial genetic editing. I think the future is going to be gene editing, gene editors, CRISPR, as we look at these therapies. But I think that as well as therapies that we would see in vivo. Right now, we're making these CAR-Ts ex vivo. We're taking the patient's T cells and being able to engineer them and then infusing them. And I think in the future, it's going to look a little bit different where we can infuse something that's really going to stimulate that response that we want. I think that there's a lot of future applications when we talk about the gene editing aspect of it, including producing cells such as the induced pluripotent stem cells that can differentiate into any cell in the body 
And those cells have just made it into a phase one clinical trial. And here at Mayo Clinic, we have one of the first phase one clinical trials looking at congenital heart disease with Dr. Tim Nelson. So we're super excited to see the potential of that. There's a lot of potential in the induced pluripotent stem cells. So for folks who are not familiar, could you please differentiate and define in vivo versus ex vivo? So ex vivo, and if we're talking about a cell therapy or an immunotherapy, it would be either taking the cell from the patient or another person where we produce that therapy. So we, we do the genetic editing externally to the patient, whereas in vivo, we'd be infusing something that would stimulate that reaction. And those T cells would be produced inside your body that would be motivated to kill the target being the cells or the solid tumor. You both have a lot of potential with what you're doing, obviously, but there are challenges to be sure, right? Especially I'm wondering about ethical issues, Dr. Montgomery, associated with xenotransplantation. Can you talk about that a bit? I think there's a couple of things with this concept of whole body donation. There certainly was quite a bit of work that we had to do to that concept and have the ethicists and religious experts and legal experts look at that. And then the idea of using another species as a donor for humans, that offers its own challenges as well. And so these are things that we shouldn't shy away from, but that really need to be explored. And you have to have the right people in the room to talk about them who are experts in ethics and legal issues. And then there's, of course, the public and the public's perception. Now, I have to say that the four studies that we've done Generally, the response from the public was quite good. I'm pleased about that. When you talk to those families of the individuals who were brain dead before you went in and did your studies, what did you tell them? Yeah. What were some of the arguments you gave for this? Yeah, I, it's, that's a great question. We're all very familiar with the concept of organ donation, right? So we've grown up hearing about that. And even the idea that if one of your organs wasn't acceptable for transplantation, that you could donate the organ for research, for instance, for one of these decellularization or organ rehab types of studies, right? So when they sign up to be donors, they're told about that. But this was a new concept. And I have to say, just figuring out the right way to approach a family because they make up their mind very quickly. And it's largely based on the first couple of sentences that come out of your mouth. And when I started doing the approach of the family, it wasn't successful. And so we sort of went back to the drawing board and we did a study where we just kind of brought people off the street. And I tried different ways of explaining what we were planning on doing. And some of them resonated with people and some of them didn't. And we basically did like focus groups and then discussed afterward what their feelings were when they heard that the organ was coming from a pig and that the, their loved one would be kept on a ventilator for, in this case, three days. And now we're extending that out to a month. And what sort of worked and what didn't work in terms of the efficiency of being able to describe this. And so we really gave that a lot of thought. And we really based it on what the perception of individuals were. Interesting about the reactions. I'm going to assume that a big challenge in this is getting the clinical trial authorization from the FDA. I think that would be yes. probably a pretty big hurdle. It is because it's it's not like a drug. It's very complicated. And it's complicated. It's very layered because it's a whole organ. 
It's an organ that has been genetically modified. So you have to prove that you have a consistent product. We have 10 gene edits, right? First of all, you're challenged by saying, okay, like, like the equivalent for a drug would be to say, okay, I've got a vial here. It's got 10 different drugs in it, right? And you can't say, I've got a vial here. It's got 10 different drugs and every vial is going to have a different amount of each drug, right? That would make the FDA go crazy. And so it's complicated. And then on top of all of that is the public health concern of zoonosis. So yes, the conversations with the FDA have, have been challenging for sure. And both the medical field and the general public are, are much more focused on acts of commission rather than acts of omission. What I mean by that is we're more moved by something that we do that then has some type of a negative effect on a human being than we are about not providing something for someone and then they die from their disease because they didn't have access to whatever that was that we could have provided. And I feel exactly the opposite, that we really need to be very conscious of what we're not being able to offer people as a way of saving their lives. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't be equally concerned about any harm that could come from something that we're doing. But I think both of those things need to be considered. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Same question, actually, to Dr. Alexson in terms of challenges to what you are doing. I would think because you are working with industry in biomanufacturing, that could be maybe an advantage and a challenge. So I will say the center is right now going through what we call a pivot to biomanufacturing. And what that really means is that we are using industry standards to be able to take these therapies through process development and early phase clinical trials which is going to give them a higher chance of success to commercialize. Typically, when you see a product get into phase one, probably only 10% of those products commercialize. So it's a very low chance right now. When it comes out of an academic environment, the academicians are usually funded for the discovery work. That's where all the grants come in. NIH grants and so forth are focused on that. There's not as much money focused on process development and being able to produce your product in the early phase clinical trials. Once you show safety and efficacy, the product will probably be licensed by a biotech and eventually move to pharma. But if you haven't set up the product appropriately, if you haven't done the appropriate tests, then they're going to have to rework it, remanufacture it to be able to get it there. It's going to cost them a lot more. And when it gets to them and they have 10 other therapies, they're going to think, okay, What's going to be the best thing for me to take forward? And it might sit on the shelf because of that. So we've decided that we are actually hiring industry experienced folks at the highest level. I have industry experience as well as academic experience, but my leaders in the pillar of process development, manufacturing, quality assurance, and quality control are all industry experienced. So we're using those with making our products to be able to standardize it, to move it to the next step. So increase the chance of success. So working with industry has been life-changing in our field. And we also work side by side. We have a relationship with Resilience. They not only are technology development, but they also do commercialized products. And they're going to be sharing a wall with us in Two Discovery Square in Rochester, Minnesota, where their PAD facility, which is a process and analytical development, will share a wall with our pad facility and they'll work side by side. So 
these are the positives because they're going to help set us up for success. The negative is the money. It's very expensive. And one thing we really do need to focus on, I just came from a meeting in Miami called Advanced Therapies Week, is patient access. So you have some of these therapies now coming out in gene editing that are $3 million plus. How is that going to allow all the patients to get treated? We really need to focus on how can we bring these costs down for the patient. So I think that if we do the right things up front and we have it set up appropriately, it may be more streamlined and allow that technology to be at a little bit of a lower cost. But we're thinking about those earlier on. How do we think about bringing down the cost and democratizing these therapies so everybody that needs them can get them? I thought it was interesting that Dr. Montgomery mentioned that there seems to be kind of a growing acceptance or at least knowledge of xenotransplantation. There's the news stories that were done. And I'm wondering about public acceptance or even knowledge of regenerative medicine. Where is that right now? Oh, I think there's a lot of people on board because you have close to 2,000 clinical trials right now. And then FDA, as far as approved uh, cell and gene therapy products, I think they're up to about 25. It's always changing, which it doesn't seem like a very large number. Now that's just the biologics. That's not including the devices or the drugs, but more when you think about regenerative medicine. And a significant number is the immunotherapy, the CAR-T, and then cord blood, as you've seen that used for blood or hematopoietic diseases for a long period of time. But I think you're seeing newer gene editing technologies that are starting to get into clinic and actually some of them that are starting to get approved. So really excited to see that because we always saw that as the future, the future of regenerative medicine and biotherapeutics, but it's really starting to happen. I've been in the field for 30 years. And so to see that come to fruition is, is quite exciting. I would be remiss, Dr. Montgomery, if I didn't ask you this. You know, when we were talking earlier about the number of individuals who were waiting for organs and didn't, as you say, get across the finish line, you were one of the lucky ones. Yeah. And I'm wondering how your personal health challenge has underscored your work moving forward. Yeah, I mean, it's been the main driver. Assuming the role of a doctor and a patient simultaneously, my whole career, I've been thinking through my own experience about what the unmet needs are. And also realizing that the predicament that our patients find themselves in is something that I've been able to access easily through my own experience. And and that has been both a great motivator and also has elucidated a lot of problems that need to be solved. So it's had a tremendous impact on me. We don't have much time left, I'm sorry to say, but a final question to you both. What's the most exciting aspect of this work for you both personally? I think I'll begin with Dr. Montgomery. I think really goes back to what I was just talking about, which is my particular medical challenge is a genetic disorder. It's a splicing gene that is mutated. One copy assembles the big cardiospecific proteins, and that mutation results in a form of cardiomyopathy and sudden death. I lost my brother at age 35, and my dad died at 52, and another brother who's had a heart transplant for 26 years. I've got children that have the same disease. We don't know about the grandchildren yet. And so this is something that is already affecting generations in our family beyond mine. And so all of this stuff is important. The idea of being able to go in and perhaps CRISPR 
this mutation and knock out one allele that is not functioning well you know is something that i keep a very close eye on and the idea of my children perhaps having a better chance if and when they need a, a heart transplant of getting one than i face is is something that is highly motivating and important to me that is powerful I'm listening to Dr. Montgomery, the gene editing and being able to see that move forward. But we treat a lot of diseases that result from aging. And you can see the aging population is able to age much longer than than in the past with some of the grandparents and so forth. So I guess just being able to treat these patients, whether it might be the CAR-T and autoimmune diseases or other types of cardiac diseases, actually, where they're looking at with the CAR-T as well. I'm super excited to be able to see those patients treated that wouldn't otherwise. I mean, I think that that's why many of us are in the field because it's this excitement of seeing these treatments that weren't otherwise available. And for the rare diseases that we deal with here a lot at Mayo Clinic and some of these rare diseases, we might see 50% of the patients to be able to have a treatment for them with gene editing would be incredible. So super excited about the future and progress that we've made in the field of biotherapeutics and honored to be a part of of this panel. It's been very moving and to hear Dr. Montgomery's story as well. So thank you. Oh, Dr. Julie Ellickson, thank you. She's the director of Mayo Clinic Center for Regenerative Medicine. And of course, Dr. Robert Montgomery is the director of the NYU Langone Transplant Institute. Both of you are fantastic guests. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. If you have questions or comments about what you heard today, do send us an email. It is precisionpod, P-O-D, precisionpod at mayo.edu. And for goodness sakes, follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We will have future conversations about a number of different topics in precision medicine. I'm Kathy Werzer. Until next time, here's to your health and well-being.